0: That was awesome. Again, thank you so much for sharing. Praise the Lord for that. And I, real quick, uh, we're able to do the All Church Retreat because we give uh, and we actually scholarship folks, we don't want price to keep people from coming. So this is actually, we're supposed to take the offering. I don't know if y'all have done that yet, but there's little baskets in the center if you could just pass those out. And and that's just a way of worship. Uh, We give as an act of worship. I don't know if you realize that, but in the Presbyterian church, we've actually said that, you know, in order for a service to be worship, you have to give, you have to have an opportunity for giving. So anyway, this is an opportunity to give back to God out of gratitude for what God's given to us. And there's joy in giving for sure of that. Well, um, as you think about your life, you think about your legacy, Have you ever thought about what what you would want your final words to be here on this earth? Last words, they leave an impression. George Harrison, the silent beetle, is uh, known for saying on his last words, on his deathbed, love one another. Those are good last words. You might copy that. That's good. Love one another. It comes from Jesus. Those are good last words. Uh, It's interesting. um, American distiller and successful businessman Jack Daniel's last words were, one more drink, please. Don't want those to be my last words, right? If I'm picking love one another much better than one last drink, please. It was interesting. I remember in uh, 2018 when my father passed away, we had checked him into hospice on a Wednesday. He died on a Friday. But his last uh, really coherent conversation was on that Wednesday night. We were talking about different things. He'd asked me to linger a little longer. Uh, I was going to go home and take the kids to bed. And he's like, no, why don't you linger a little longer? And he started telling me things I didn't even know to ask. Uh, Like, for instance, they didn't know they could have a second child. Uh, They'd wrestled with infertility, and and so I was kind of a a surprise baby, a gift from God, I like to think. Uh, But anyway, uh, yeah, and so they were telling me these things. And then finally, as he was taking the morphine and knew he was dying soon, he said, you know, Howard, when life's at its end, there's only one thing that really matters. It's not the cars. It's not the house. It's not the family farm. It's not the money in the bank. It's relationships. Life is all about relationships. That's what's most important. I'll never forget those words. I think of those words every day. As I begin my day, I think life, it's about relationships. Right? Second most important commandment, love one another as you have loved yourself. Life is about relationships. What do you want your last words to be? Your last words of encouragement, direction to those loved ones who are around you before you die. Do you know what the last words of Jesus were right before he ascended to heaven? If you wanna see those words, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles, your iPhones, your Androids to Acts chapter one, Acts chapter one, verses one to 11. Uh, we're gonna begin this journey through Acts. If you were with us before Easter, you know we began a journey to Jerusalem with Jesus through the gospel of Luke. And Luke, as we know, uh, was a physician He was a missionary companion of the Apostle Paul. In fact, when the Apostle Paul starts the church in Philippi, Luke is with him as they start the church with a woman named Lydia who was a dealer of purple. And and, and every historian today will tell you that from from an ancient historian's perspective, Luke was a first-rate historian. He may have been a physician, but he was also a very good historian because he interviewed eyewitnesses. He interviewed the Virgin Mary to hear her story about how, how Jesus was born and prophesied about. Luke does a wonderful job of interviewing eyewitnesses and gathering an orderly account of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And in the book of Acts, Luke lets us know what were the final words of Jesus to his disciples, words that should still guide us and lead us today. To see what those words are, again, turn to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you so much that you inspired Luke to interview many eyewitnesses so that we might have an orderly written account of the final words of Jesus before he ascended to heaven. God, I pray that by your spirit, you might allow these words to penetrate our heart, that we might be transformed by them you might help us see how we can faithfully apply these words to our lives today. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 to 11, listen to God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, the first book being the gospel of Luke, if you read Luke 1, that's how he starts At O Theophilus. In first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said... You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if your Bible's like mine or maybe on your Android or iPhone, it says the Acts of the Apostles at the title. And that's literally the, uh, the, the way that the, in the Greek, the title of the book is the Acts of the Apostles. But many New Testament scholars make the point that if, if you really wanted this to be an accurate depiction of the book, it really should be the, be the Acts of the Apostles By the power of the Holy Spirit. Because as you read the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 56 times in the 28 chapters. It's clearly the the Holy Spirit who's moving in and through the disciples. In fact, in the 11 verses I just read, the Holy Spirit is mentioned three times. It's the Holy Spirit who's going to empower these disciples to to live out the words, this final command of Jesus. We find it in verse 8. Let's look again at those words. But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This is kind of a funny scene if you think about it just for a minute, you know? So Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, has been with his disciples for 40 days, teaching them, guiding them, and then he gives these final words, you know? And he he tells them, go back to Jerusalem, right? And you will be, and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he says these words because they're they're on the Mount of Olives, which is about three-fourths of a mile, not too far from Jerusalem, but they're at the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus ascends to heaven, and the disciples watch him go, and they stand there, And they look and they look and they stand and they look and they stand and they do nothing. And eventually, God has to send two angels to tell the guys, hey, get moving, right? I mean, that's what he says here. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? He told you to go to Jerusalem. What are you doing here? I mean, think about it from the scene of heaven, right? Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, he ascends to heaven. He gets to see his heavenly father. Heavenly father's so excited. He loves his son so much. He's his one and only son, right? Gives him a high five or a hug, or I don't know what they did. But anyway, so excited and magic He goes, oh, Jesus, you did everything I told you to do. You're such a faithful son. You've even, you you've told the disciples what they need to do. And I know when we send the Holy Spirit, they're going to be able to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But Jesus, what are your disciples doing? They're just standing there looking. They're not moving. Why are they just standing? And Jesus is like, well, I told them to go to Jerusalem. They're just standing there. Why are they just standing around? We've got to send two angels to tell them to get moving, right? Men of Galilee, why are you standing? Why are we often standing around? Now, I know we're all pretty busy. We don't really literally spend that much time standing around. But when it comes to sharing our faith, we're often guilty of kind of just standing around. Now as Presbyterians, and you know, we come out of the Reformation, and, and the cry of the Reformation was grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, glory to God alone. We're saved by grace alone, God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve God's grace or his love. He gives it to us as a gift that we receive by faith alone. And, and, and we're saved by the work of Christ alone. It's not Christ plus my works. It's just simply what Christ has done. And so as we emphasize the saving work of Christ and the fact that we're saved by his work alone and that it's all received by faith alone, we can run the risk of thinking there's nothing else to do. Just receive Christ and wait till Jesus comes back or until we get to go to heaven to see him, right? Sadly, we've become, as Presbyterians, known as the frozen chosen, right? We just kind of sit around, Stand around, we'll we'll let the Baptists do the evangelism or maybe the Pentecostals, the Church of Christ. We don't always do our part. We're not as active as we need to be to be a faithful witness of God's love. Look again at this text, what he tells us to do. He says in verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. What does it mean to be a witness, exactly, for Jesus? The Greek word for witness here is martis. Martis, can you say that with me? Martis. We get the English word martyr from martis. And church history tells us that uh, after Judas kills himself, you have 11 remaining disciples, and of those 11, 10 of them die as martyrs for their faith because they were such bold witnesses to what they had seen and experienced. Because to be a witness is to testify to what you know to be true, to what you've seen, and to what you've experienced. And the disciples had been with Jesus for three years in his ministry, and they had heard his teaching, and they had seen him, you know, turn water into wine, and he'd seen him give sight to a blind man allow the lame to walk and even bring the dead back to life. And then they got to see the resurrected Jesus, the risen Jesus. In fact, some of them even touched the resurrected Jesus, so they couldn't help but tell others and testify to what they'd seen and what they knew to be true. When was the last time you told someone your testimony as a witness of God's love and work in your life? Yeah, we're all called to be a witness. Now, I know that sometimes when we think about sharing our faith, people will tell me, but I don't have the gift of evangelism. He doesn't call us to evangelize. He calls us to be a witness, tell people what God has done in your life and how he's made a difference. In fact, in our postmodern world that we live in, where truth is relative and truth is ultimately based by one's personal experience, one of the most effective things we can do to share our faith is to, is to tell them how Jesus has made a difference in our life. Tell them the story of, of how you came to faith. Like Emily, at the age of nine, her mom told her about this, and she went to Glorieta Camp and, and accepted Christ, and, and how she began to share her faith with others, and how that made a difference, and, and how God has answered your prayers, and how you've seen God move in and through your life. yes. We're called to be a witness of God's work in our life today. And one of the best ways to do this from a real practical standpoint is when you meet someone, get to know their story first, because everybody's got a story. Hear their story of, well, how did you come to Amarillo? You know, maybe they were born here. If so, where did you go to high school, you know? What are you doing now? How did you get into that career? If they're married, hey, how did you meet your spouse? You might even ask, do you have a church home? And as you get to know them, the natural thing to do in conversation is then to share your story as you hear their story and learn their story then they'll ask you about your story and central to all of our stories is what's the story of Jesus and what Jesus has done in our life how much he loves us and how we came to Christ and and how he's changed our life and how we've seen God answer prayers just we're called to be a witness to tell others that good news but what's the key to being a good witness an effective witness in our world today Let's go back to Acts 1, and let's see what the disciples do. After being kind of reprimanded by these angels for just standing around, listen to what they do in verses 12 to 14. We read these words. Then they, the disciples, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath-day journey away, which is about three-fourths of a mile. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The first thing the disciples do once they've been reprimanded for just standing around is they go to the upper room and they pray. They pray. In fact, as you read the God, the book of Acts, you'll find that the word prayer or praying is mentioned 31 times in the 28 chapters of Acts. The earliest church spent a whole lot of time praying. In fact, if you do the, the quick math on this text, you know, you're going to find out that uh, you know, Pentecost is named Penta because it's 50 days after Easter, Right? And we just read that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, spent 40 days teaching the disciples and doing some amazing signs before them so they would be impacted by encountering the risen Jesus, right? And then he commissions them with this great, test, this great commission to, to go and be witnesses first in Jerusalem, the city that they're in, Judea, the region that they're from, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In fact, scholars point out that Acts 1 verse 8 is, is really the thesis of the whole book. For Acts chapter 1 to 7, all happens in Jerusalem and Judea. Then, they, then Stephen is persecuted, the church scatters, you find Philip in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And then by Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are chosen by the Holy Spirit and commissioned to go and make disciples to plant churches throughout the Mediterranean and to the ends of the earth as they knew it. But before any of this happens, the disciples pray. They pray that God might use them to be an effective witness of his love. And if we want to be an effective witness of God's love, if we want God to use us to help point others to Christ, we need to pray. In fact, as Presbyterians, we know in our theology, and as we read the, the writings of Paul, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. God's the one who initiates our relationship with Him. God is the one who reveals Himself to us. God is the one, as we read in Revelation chapter 3, who's knocking on the door of our heart that we might open it up to Him. And if we want our friends and our classmates and our coworkers and our loved ones and our neighbors to come to know Christ, to know His saving love, to experience a relationship with Him, we need to pray that God might move in their life, and we need to pray that God might use us to help turn others towards Him we might be a faithful witness. I love the words of Dr. James Edwin Orr, who was the professor of uh, missions at Fuller Seminary for several decades. He was a student of the great revivals in the history of the world. And he wrote this, no great spiritual awakening has begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer. Christians persistently praying for revival. If we want to see God revive our land, if we want to see God move in a mighty way, we've got to do our part. We've got to begin by praying. That's always the precursor to the great movements of God. We see it in the book of Acts. The disciples pray for 10 days. When was the last time you spent concentrated time praying for those who don't know the Lord, praying with others that God might move in and through us to be a witness? We've got to pray so that God might move in a mighty way as he often does throughout history. In fact, we see this in 1857. Jeremiah Landfear who was a, a Presbyterian uh, member of uh, Duane Presbyterian Church in New York City. Uh, in, in fact, I had a friend of mine tell me many years ago, he said, you know, if you take the word Presbyterian and you rearrange the letters, you can write best in prayer. Not sure if that's true, but I like it. Uh, I'll go with that. But Dwayne uh, Duane, uh, Presbyterian Church member, Jeremiah Landfear was not content with what he saw happening in New York City. He didn't like the way the culture was headed, what he saw within his community, He wanted God to move, and so he put out pamphlets where he invited people to come join him for a noontime prayer meeting during the lunch hour, and even wrote in the pamphlet, if you can't come for the whole hour, that's okay. Just come for as long as you can, and we'll pray. Pray for God to heal our land. When Jeremiah Landfers started this, this prayer meeting, the first 30 minutes, he was all alone. Nobody showed up, but he prayed. He kept praying, and then six other people showed up from six completely different denominations. They showed up to pray, and they talked about their time together, and they said, hey, let's let's do this again next week. Let's see who God might bring that we might pray and see how God might move. Well, the next week, 20 people showed up. The next week, 40 people showed up. The next week, 100 people showed up. It was amazing how many people were being moved to pray. And then eventually, churches throughout New York City began to start their own prayer meetings so that at one point, there were 10,000 people, over 10,000 people praying in New York City every day for God to move in and through their city. And this prayer meeting began to spread throughout the country so that it began and launched one of the great revivals in the history of our country where it's recorded from 1857 to 1859, over 2 million people in the United States came to faith in Christ when our country only had 30 million people. It's amazing what God can do in and through our prayers. When was the last time you spent time praying? Praying for those who don't know the Lord, praying with others, that God might help us together be a witness of his love. Did you know that the largest Presbyterian church in the world today is in Seoul, Korea? It has over 100,000 members. That's amazing. 100,000. I mean, our city has 190,000 people. In Seoul, Korea, there's a church, one church, Presbyterian, with over 100,000 people. What's most amazing about that, the church was founded in 1980, our church was founded in 1890, right? We've been around a long time. They, they're barely, they're pups. They're new, right? 1980, and yet they've got over 100,000. How did that happen? We have just under 1,000 people. How did they get 100,000 people in such a short period of time? Well, this church, this Presbyterian church in Seoul, Korea, is known for its early morning prayer meetings. They'll get together at 5 a.m. In fact, there's four of these meetings. They'll get together at 5 a.m. It's near a bus stop and they, or train stop, and they will pray, fervently pray. Praying that God might use them to be a witness at their place of work, at their school, in their neighborhoods, in their social circles. Praying for their coworkers who don't yet know the Lord. Praying for their classmates who don't yet know the Lord. Praying that God might move, allow them to be a witness, and that God might move, that their hearts might be opened to what God is doing. How much time do we spend praying? Praying for those who are far from God. You know, Billy Graham, the great evangelist, before he would ever do a crusade, before he'd go to any city, he would mobilize the local churches in that city to pray. He would have many churches praying together, praying that God would till the soil of the hearts of the people to come and hear that message, the message of God's great love, that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son here to this earth who was without sin, who did for us what we can never do for ourselves, for Jesus lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father, fulfilling all the moral law, Then he died on a cross as the perfect atoning sacrifice for all of our sins so that we might know, as Jesus says in John 19, verse 30, it is finished, our sins have been atoned for. And then on the third day, Jesus rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf so that we might know with full assurance that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the great I am, the Savior of the world. Amen? If we know that to be true, then we've got to share that news with others. We've got to be willing to be a witness of his great love. And the first step we can see from our text in being an effective witness is to pray. So I'm gonna stop preaching and we're gonna start praying. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you, Lord, as we look at this text in acts in the earliest church. Then after hearing this great commission that we all have today, which is to be a witness wherever we are of your great love so that others might come to know you, we can see that the disciples after being rebuked by the angels, did the right thing, they prayed. For 10 days, they prayed. And you moved in those prayers, and then you sent your Holy Spirit, and each one of these disciples previously who had been scared to share their faith became bold witnesses of what they knew to be true. So God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would move in all of our hearts to be a bold witness for you. And Lord, we pray for our co-workers our classmates, our students, our neighbors, our friends, our family members. We pray for those who don't yet know you, that they might come to know you, that by your spirit, you would use us to point them to you. And so Lord, in the quietness of this moment, we quietly lift those names up to you, each one individually. Lord, as we pray, we thank you, God, that by your Holy Spirit, we know you're with us, and that by your Spirit, you equip us to do the work of your kingdom with different spiritual gifts so that you might be glorified. So God, I pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to be attuned to how your Spirit is moving, that we might do your work here on earth as it is in heaven, that we might be a light of your love, that others may see our good deeds and give praises to you, our Father who is in heaven that we might be ready to give an account for the hope that we have in you, a hope that's based on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, who before he ascended to heaven, commissioned all of us to be a witness, wherever we are, of your great love, to tell others the story of your great love. So God, by your spirit, empower us to be bold witnesses as well. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.